so good to be here today to worship the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18, if you're joining us here on, uh, in person, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, welcome. It'll be on your screen at home. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18, this is God's word. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and truly, as this word says, when this earth and the heavens have passed, long after you will still remain, and your word will still remain, and all who put their trust and faith in you will be with you for all eternity. And so, Lord God, that's our great hope. And today, Lord God, as we begin to wind down this series, Lord, that you would really fix our eyes on that hope, that you would really encourage us to live, begin to live in a certain way, to begin to turn our eyes and our lives towards you based on this great reality that you are coming back. So Lord God, uh, please speak. Uh, Thank you for everyone here, everyone online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, praise the Lord. Well, it's good to be back looking at the letter of 2 Peter after taking a good break from this letter last week. And today, we're gonna be finally at the closing paragraph of this entire letter. So this is it, this is the end. And in these final verses, Peter is now bringing everything that he has said so far in chapter three, and really throughout the entire letter, he's bringing all of that to a close. Peter is now going to land the plane. So we are in the final section, and based on everything that Peter has said previously, We're talking about Jesus' second coming, God's judgment on false teachers and sinners on that last day, the melting down and renewal of creation. Based on all of that, Peter is now drawing a logical and necessary conclusion. And how do we know this is what he's doing? Well, it's because he uses these little words in these verses. It's the word since and the word therefore. You see these words in verses 11, 14, and 17. And what do these words mean? Well, if you know English, you know what they mean. But they basically mean you're about to hear a logical and necessary conclusion to something that was said before. And so we know that. But for example, if somebody said, it's going to rain today, therefore you should get an umbrella. Can we understand that? That therefore is pointing to a logical conclusion based on The previous statement is going to rain today. Therefore, get your umbrella. Well, this is what Peter is doing here in these verses. He is bringing everything he said prior in chapter 3 especially, and now he's bringing it to a logical and necessary conclusion. And Peter, he beautifully summarizes this conclusion that he's bringing this entire letter to with this one question in verse 11. It's very beautiful how he just summarizes it all up with one question. Here it is. What sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? So with that single question, he is just driving home the final logical conclusion to everything that he said. What sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? So again, in light of Jesus' return and the coming day of the Lord, in light of God's judgment that is coming upon every false teacher, sinner, and unbeliever in the world, in light of God melting down creation itself and creating a new heaven and a new earth for his people, 
in light of all of that, what sort of people should you be in holiness and godliness? And we're not talking about 50 years from now. We're not talking about in heaven. We're talking about today, every day. How should you live, church? How should you be in light of this great reality? And that's the big question Peter is focused on in the close of his letter. He's focused on what kinds of people we should be in holiness. Holiness. And that word holiness in the ESV translation is really two words in the Greek. You really see that coming out in other translations like the NASB, but it's two words in the Greek. Holy conduct or holy living. So it's not just some vague general like, oh, holiness. It's talking about something very practical here. Holy conduct. Holy living. Peter adds to that another word, godliness, holiness and godliness. And that word, godliness, is probably pointing to maybe the inner attitudes of the heart, like a God-fearing heart, a reverent heart. Although some scholars say it could also be pointing to godly living. So an emphasis. He's just repeating this kind of practical emphasis on godly, holy living. So this question, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness, this is really talking about practical living. This is what Peter cares about as he's winding down his letter. So based on all the stuff we've been talking about, God's judgment on false teachers, Jesus' second coming, the melting down of the universe, the creation of the new heavens and new earth, how are you going to live day to day in a practical way, in a holy, godly, practical way? And so this is the big question. And Peter, in these closing verses, gives us a list of answers. So he actually tells us very directly, very plainly, this is how you should live practically. And so here they are. In light of Jesus' return and the great day of the Lord that is coming, here are six different practical ways you should be. So first, you should be an eternally minded people. Number two, you should be watchful people. Three, you should be diligent people. Four, a discerning people. Five, you should be a growing people, meaning spiritually growing people. And then six, you should be a God-glorifying people. So that's Peter's answer. This is how he wraps up this entire letter. It's very practical. And today we're only going to look at the first three. There's even too much, I think, in the first three. So we'll, we'll do our best to get through the first three. And then next week, we're going to finish out this entire series by looking at the final three. So today we're going to look at being an eternally minded people, watchful people, and a diligent people. This is how we're going to live in preparation of Jesus' coming. So first, in light of Jesus' return, we should be an eternally minded people. And eternally minded people. So look at verses 10 through 11. 10 through 11. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Talking about there's going to be such an intense fire and heat God's going to bring. It's going to be like this deafening roar. Can't even imagine it. But the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since, remember that's one of those important words I mentioned, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So here in verse 10, we see the perspective that will cause a person to ask this big question. What sort of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness? We're looking at the perspective now. See, asking that question requires a certain kind of perspective. Okay, nobody just wakes up one day and in a vacuum goes, you know what? With no input from God, I wonder how I'm going to be living a life of godliness and holiness. Okay, what sort of person should I be in my life? No one just wakes up one day and thinks that. But that question really comes from a certain perspective or mindset. And here it is. It's an eternal mindset. We need to become an eternally minded people. So this is the perspective that Peter's really opening up this final closing section. If you want to be ready for Jesus' coming, you need to first of all have this eternal perspective or mindset. You need to be an eternally minded people. But what does that mean? 
Okay, how do you become an eternally minded person? Well, because Peter just does such a good job laying things out, we're just going to look directly at what he says. But there are three things an internally minded person knows. And they never lose sight of this. And if you're going to be ready for the day of the Lord, Jesus coming, you're going to need an eternally minded perspective, right? Well, here are the three things you got to know if you're going to have that. First, an eternally minded person knows that God will bring this world to a sudden and unexpected end. Okay, this shouldn't be a surprise. We've looked at this for weeks now. But it's all going to be coming to an end. Peter said in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So when a thief breaks into your house, it's going to be sudden and unexpected, right? Because if it wasn't sudden and if you expected it, then the thief probably wouldn't have broken in. You would have been ready, right? You would have been there with your BB gun. You would have been ready. But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief that does break in. Why? Because it's sudden. It's going to be unexpected. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no idea when Jesus will return. It doesn't mean that, you know, we have no clue that he can come back at any moment, even right now. It doesn't mean that. But no, we can know the generation Jesus will return. We can even know the season he will return. So Jesus' return is not signless and imminent, as some people teach. Again, it's not like he's going to come at the end of the sentence, right now, right? It's not like that. He doesn't come back just signless with no warning. That's not what the Bible says. But Jesus taught the opposite. He taught his disciples to know the signs of his coming. In Matthew 24, he said, when you see all these things, in other words, these signs of my coming, recognize that I am near, right at the door. See, you'll know. You'll kind of know around when he's going to be coming, although we will not know the hour, though, the exact moment. And by the way, we're seeing more and more of these signs today, and I hope to do a thorough study on these signs one day. I really do. I want all of our church, everyone here, to know very clearly what the end times will look like before Jesus returns. But he is coming back soon. His return is drawing near. But here's the point Peter's making, though. But for those who don't know Christ, who don't pay attention to what Christ says, it's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. Boom, like a thief in the night. When you're sleeping in bed at night and a thief breaks in, you're not expecting that. It's sudden. You are surprised. It is not a good surprise. And that's what God is saying here through Peter. The day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly. So the person with the eternal mindset before anything else, you just know that. You always have that in the front of your mind. You never lose sight of that. Okay, number two, an eternally minded person knows that God will bring this world and everything in it to a cataclysmic end. It's not just sudden and unexpected. It's going to be cataclysmic. So Peter, he said here, the heavenly bodies, in the second part of verse 10, he says the heavenly bodies will literally melt down. It will be melted down. Now, another translation for heavenly bodies is basic elements. Talking about the basic elements that make up the universe. Again, if you look at other translations, you'll see the word elements. And the Bible says in more than one place that these basic elements of creation will be melted down. It's a really strange teaching, but the Bible insists on it, repeats it. But on the day of the Lord... As Jesus returns, there is going to be such a cataclysmic, intense event that will melt down the elements of creation itself. Now, this doesn't mean that all of creation is going to be obliterated, nothing's left, God starts over from scratch. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying, to a degree, things are going to get melted down. But why? Not to destroy everything, but to renew everything. So enough to renew everything, God's going to melt things down, but not so much that everything's gone, everything's destroyed. No, we know that's not true because Peter says the earth will still be here. If you read on in verse 10, it says the earth and everything on it will be exposed. So the earth will still be here, but the earth will be melted down. There will be a fire. Everything upon the earth will be destroyed and exposed. So let me just get practical here. We're talking about cities institutions, governments, companies, banks, schools, hospitals, 
criminal enterprises, the corruption and darkness and evil lurking in the shadows all throughout the earth, all of it will be burned up and melted down and exposed. Again, I talked about how when we first came to Riverside, we just saw all these like charred, burned areas all over the Riverside and the hills. But all these weeds and all these shrubs were burned away and the ground underneath was exposed. God is saying the same thing will happen on the day of the Lord to the earth. It's going to be like Riverside. All these things are going to be burned away and what is underneath is exposed. And so then this brings us to the third thing an eternally minded person will know. Not only is the end coming in a sudden, unexpected way, not only will it be cataclysmic, but they will know God will judge everything that has been exposed. So that's the third thing that the eternally minded person will know. So the reason why God will burn everything on the earth and expose everything, even exposing what is in the hearts of men and women, is why? To judge it. He will judge all of it. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man and woman to die once, and after that comes judgment. So things are exposed. Why? So that God will weigh it and judge it. And for everyone who has repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, they will stand before God on judgment day covered in the righteousness of Christ, and they will be saved as going through the fire. They will be saved and given eternal life. And everyone else, their sins will condemn them, and they will be cast into eternal judgment in hell. And so again, the Bible just insists on that. You can't get around that. Nearly every book in the Bible repeats that, insists on that. And the eternally minded person knows it. They know these truths. They never lose sight of these truths. And brothers and sisters, that eternal perspective will shape everything in your life. It will. That is how powerful it is. It'll shape your values, your priorities, your relationships, how you handle money, what you invest your money in, what you spend it on, how you raise your children, okay, what's important for your kids, what are the priorities for your kids, how you cope with sickness and death, how you relate to God. It'll impact everything. This is why it's so important. This is why Peter is driving this home at the end of his letter. You need, you need this eternal perspective if you're going to be prepared for that day. So your view of eternity, eternity will impact all of those areas in your life. And in all of those areas, you will be focused on certain things, right? If you have this eternal perspective, you're going to be thinking about a certain way to live your life. For example, you're going to think, you know what? It's probably not a good idea to be focused on investing in what will come to a sudden cataclysmic end. Right? It's probably not a good idea to put all my money and things, symbolically speaking, into something that's going to crash and be gone tomorrow. <laughs> okay, that's not a good idea. That's common sense. Okay, I don't want to pour all my life into something that God's going to judge very soon. Okay, that's, not, that's not smart. But rather, it's probably better to invest all of my time and energy and live for something that will last forever under the sovereign rule of God, which is his kingdom. Amen? And I remember hearing powerful testimonies of missionaries who would give up their lives at a very young age. I remember this one sister, she was not married and she gave up that opportunity. Later she got married, God blessed her. But I remember she was struggling a lot and she was just really wrestling with God. Do I give up this opportunity to even get married so that I could go serve God on the mission field somewhere far away where there are no prospects to meet anybody? And she wrestled with that. And I encouraged her. I said, yeah, forget marriage, go. <laughs> and she did. And you know what? There was, a, there was a handsome guy waiting for her there. So she met a guy on the mission field and they're buried. But she wrestled with that. What will I invest in if I have this eternal perspective? And so the person who has that eternal, eternity in mind will know I must live in this way and not in this way. I must invest in things that will last, not in things that will burn up and come to a cataclysmic end. And this is true, by the way, even for people who have an unbiblical view of eternity. How they view eternity will really impact their lives. Every area. But I remember years ago listening to a segment on NPR, and it was on immortality and the afterlife. It was kind of fascinating. And on that segment, a woman called in to share her views on death and the afterlife. And so here she is talking to the host, and she said, you know, I used to be so scared of death until my mom 
gave me perspective on it. And she just shared this little story. But she said that her mom one day asked this woman, do you remember from before you were born? Do you remember anything? And this woman said, uh, no, nothing. I wasn't conscious. I didn't even exist. And then the mom said, yeah, that's right. That's the way it'll be when you die. You will no longer be conscious. You will no longer exist. And the woman said, when the mom told her those words, she felt so comforted. And she's not afraid of death anymore. And all of that sounded very positive on the show, but the mom gave zero evidence, zero proof that this, this is true. She was very confident in sharing it, but zero evidence. Christians, on the other hand, believe that the Bible says what the Bible says about eternity because Jesus rose from the dead. And then he bodily appeared to many witnesses who then laid down their lives to declare Jesus' resurrection. They literally paid for that testimony with their lives. This mom had no proof like that. But because this woman believed what the mom said, this powerfully shaped her life in countless ways. So think about all the ways that her view on eternity shaped her life. But it would have shaped all the things I mentioned earlier, like her priorities in life, right? Her relationships, how she handles money, how she raises her kids, how she deals with sickness and death, even her views on God. Right? Everything you can imagine would have been impacted by this false view of eternity that her mom gave to her. But it's not only people with an unbiblical view of eternity, but it's also true of people with no view of eternity, even people with zero view of eternity who never even think about it, it shapes their lives. It shapes the way they live their lives. But people who never take a step back and never even ask once, what's the point of life? Okay, why am I here? What am I really living for? What is my, why is my heart so restless? By the way, it's restless because God said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, I have set eternity in the hearts of men and women yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So God put eternity in our hearts. But if you don't understand that, you are restless. But people go on living, not even asking why, right? Why, why is my life kind of wandering? Why am I here? What's the point of all of this? And people who don't understand eternity and the eternal one, namely God, they're going to live a certain kind of life. So even having no view of eternity will impact your life in a profound way. I remember one time hearing Alistair Begg talking about a life kind of like this, a life in this endless cycle of just kind of drifting along with no God in view, no eternity in view. But let me just quote him at length. But this is what he said. He said, this explains your friends at work, incidentally. Don't be too unkind to them tomorrow morning when they show up to work. Because they're frustrated with everything. They're confused by everything. They've gone through another Sunday. There was no worship in it for them. In other words, they're not Christian. They don't go to church. In fairness, we can say there was worship in it for them. They worshiped at their own shrines. They did their own thing. They assembled themselves before the gods of their own making. But they didn't satisfy. Their gods couldn't answer. Their gods didn't speak. Their gods didn't hear. In fact, they were in charge of their gods. They programmed their gods and got from them what they desired. And what they desired really didn't satisfy. And here they are driving in the car again, down the 215 and now onto the 91. He didn't say 215 and 91. I just changed the freeways, okay? <laughs> and now they're back on the same rat race as last Monday and the same one as the next Monday, and the same one as the following Monday, and the following Monday, and the following Monday, and I can't get enough vacation time to deal with this. I can't drink enough booze to handle this. I can't shoot it up enough to clean this up. I'm a nowhere man. I'm just living in my nowhere land. I'm making all my nowhere plans for nobody. So I thought that was very powerful. But that's the person who has no view of eternity. They're restless. God has put eternity in our hearts. They don't even know what that is. Why is that there? And so whether you have a false view of eternity or no view of eternity, it profoundly shapes your life in every area. So my question this morning is, what's your view? Right? Which one describes you? Do you have no view of eternity as you drift through life? Do you have a wrong view of eternity? That you're trying to figure out your own life? make your life whatever you want it to be? 
Or do you have God's view of eternity investing into what will last forever? And brothers and sisters, if you are not clear on why you are here, and not to put an age on it, but by the time you're approaching your late 20s, heading into your 30s, for sure when you're in your 40s and 50s, you should know exactly why you're here as a believer. And my encouragement is that you can know. You can know exactly why God has placed you. Why am I here? What am I doing every day when I wake up? And there's a focus. There's a direction. There's a purpose to my life. And it all flows from this view of eternity that you have. So which one describes you? Do you have God's view of eternity? And if you do, then here's the second kind of people that you should be. Not only an eternally minded person, but you should be a watchful person. A watchful person. Look at verses 11 through 13. Peter goes on. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melt, will melt as they burn. But according to his purpose, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here Peter is now moving on to this other quality that we should have, which is to be watchful. Peter says three times in this final section, waiting. That's the ESV word, waiting. We just read two of them in verses 12 and 13. And that word waiting, it means looking for something expectantly. You know, yesterday, my son, he got a late birthday gift. He got Mario Kart Deluxe, and he was super excited, and he kept calling me and texting me going, Dad, I was out working <laughs> earlier that day. I had meetings. He's like, Dad, is he here yet? Did it come? Did it come? I'm like, boy, <laughs> don't, don't bother me at my meeting over Mario Kart Deluxe. It's not here yet. But you know what? To be honest, I was waiting for it too. <laughs> but it's that kind of waiting, right? You're expectant. Another word, a better word, I think, is watching. That's a better word because waiting can sound more passive while watching is active, right? It's watching. And so this is what Peter is saying believers will do if they have an eternal perspective, if they know that Jesus is returning, they're going to be watching. They're watching. But what does that mean? Well, from that simple word of lo- alone, the meaning of that word alone, we know watching starts with what? Being awake. Okay, you're not watching very well if you're sleeping. But being awake. The most useless watchman is the sleeping watchman. That's how stories get robbed blind. It's because the security guard who should be awake fell asleep and then people do all kinds of stuff. In the same way, when Peter, Paul, and Jesus all commanded believers to watch, They regularly said in the same verse or section, stay awake. You see that repeatedly. But Jesus said in Revelation 16, 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So right there, Jesus connects staying awake to keeping your clothes on. Okay, really weird. Okay, weird imagery. But that weird picture of keeping your clothes on, it comes from this ancient problem that men in ancient times had. Because men in ancient times wore dresses. They were called robes. Uh, They're not dresses, but they were long robes. And they would have a little belt around their waist. And whenever they would do activity like run or climb something, sometimes the robe would fall open. And they would get exposed. And because men at that time knew that, they would be very careful paying attention to their behavior to their conduct. They wouldn't just randomly start running or climbing without taking care of things first, right? And so Jesus here is saying the same thing must be done spiritually. You don't just begin to live in any which way and let your robe come undone and you get exposed. In other words, you need to be careful of how you're living in light of the coming day so that you don't become exposed by your sin and become ashamed. You need to take care of what you're doing. Watch. Stay awake. This is what Jesus is saying. Be spiritually awake. Kind of tying into what Peter is saying here. Very similar message. Be careful in the way you are living. Don't let sudden sins, secret sins in your life suddenly get exposed and now you're ashamed as Jesus is returning. You don't want that. That is the last thing you want. 
And so people who are spiritual away, they are very careful to ask, am I living in God's will? Today, okay, church was, you know, fun. It was great. I'm going home now. Am I living in God's will? Am I going to live in God's will this week? Am I living in faith? Or am I just doing things in my own guidance, under my own power, just pew! Hey, that looks good. I'm going to go do that. Oh, you know, more money here. I'm going to take that job. Oh, I'm going to move here because I like that city. I mean, am I living in faith in God, trusting him? Am I living in the presence of God through constant fellowship with him? Or am I just living under my own direction and my own power, just doing whatever? See, that's the first way, the quickest way you're going to get exposed. Just like Jesus said, take care so that your garments stay on and you don't go about naked, becoming exposed. And so many Christians, unfortunately, are exactly that. They're just living their lives exposed, wide open, sin here, sin here, doing this, doing that. And Jesus said, be awake. And so let me ask this question, but if you are to be awake, have you ever taken a spiritual inventory of your life? I'm talking about just practically, have you ever like cleared off your desk or gone to a kitchen table, cleared everything off, gone a clean sheet of paper? In the same way that you would take inventory, right, if you're about to move, or let's say you're about to like clean out your garage and have a garage sale, you're going to take an inventory. But have you ever taken an inventory of your spiritual life and put a clean sheet of paper on that table and then prayed and asked God, God, can you reveal things in my life? I don't do that too often, but I've done that at certain points, critical points in my life. But Lord, just speak to me with the Bible open and in prayer. Like, Lord, reveal, is there anything in my life? David said, Lord, is there anything hidden in my heart? Right, reveal my heart. And then afterwards, begin to write down all the areas of your life. I'm talking about your relationships, what you do on your own personal time, your work, your school, your family, your personal hobbies, what you do online. What do you like to do online? Where do you always go online? Have you ever done an inventory? And then begin to look at all this and then say, is there anything here that is not in line with the will of God? In other words, is there any compromise? Again, to use Jesus' analogy, is there any area where I'm exposed? Like shamefully just naked as a believer. Oh, I didn't even pay attention to this. This is totally uncovered, right? I, I didn't look at this either. It's completely exposed, revealing sin. Well, the watchful person who is awake, they will do this. And I would actually say regularly do this. I mean, who would go into their first day of work and not be prepared for anything that's going to happen there? Who's going to go into a final exam and just like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to wing it this time. Hopefully, some of you guys might do that, but hopefully nobody would do that. And if that is true for work, in school, then how much more for the day that's coming? We need to take inventory, brothers and sisters. And this leads to the next point. But the watchful person is not only awake, but they are also prepared. Prepared. Oftentimes, when the Bible talks about being watchful, there's also preparation. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that warning comes at the very end of a parable. Many of you guys know it is the parable of the ten virgins. So we don't have time to go into this parable, but just kind of briefly what it means is, Jesus is saying, look, you need to watch, for you don't know the day or the hour, lest you become like one of these virgins that were foolish. So there were ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. But on the outside, they looked the same, just like everyone here. They all had lambs, they're all waiting for the bridegroom, Jesus, they're all at church, they all looked the same. Everyone's the same. They all have the same robes on, the same gown. They're all the same. And yet, when you look more closely, five were foolish. Why? They were unprepared. And five were wise. Why? Because they were prepared. And the key to their preparation was the oil. So in this story, the oil represented something very important. But the prepared virgins had oil for their lamps. So when the bridegroom finally came, they lit their lamps, they were ready, they went in. But the foolish had no oil. They weren't prepared. So when the bridegroom finally came, they're like, oh my gosh, we don't have oil. And so they went to go buy some, and by the time they came back, too late. The groom said, who are you? You missed the whole thing. And so Jesus makes it very clear. The key issue here is preparation. See, watching also includes preparedness, being prepared. 
And so then what is this oil that Jesus was talking about? Well, some people get forceful about what the oil is, but this is a parable. It's a story. And Jesus didn't tell us what the oil is exactly. And so it could be a number of things. But oil could be, for example, it could be the Holy Spirit. It could be maybe faith in the gospel. It could be life of Christ inside every believer, the life of Christ. So it could be a number of things. But whatever it is, it is what lights the fire of God, the new life of God inside of you. It is what enables you to shine the life of God to the world outside. And what is that? What's going to be any one of those things, right? The Holy Spirit, faith in the gospel, the life of Christ in you, whatever it is. It's that real thing inside of you that makes you a believer, that makes you shine. And God says, be prepared. Yeah, I'm coming. You need to make sure that this true life of God, the spirit of God, the presence of God, the life of Christ is in you before I return. Be prepared. Because once I come, you're not going to have time. Oh, I'm going to go to church now. No, it's over. Oh, I'm going to go figure it out now. Oh, maybe I'll read my Christian book that I've not read this entire, no, it's over. You need to be prepared now. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test and make sure you are in the faith. So going back to that inventory, have you taken an inventory on that? Not only what area is exposed, but, but have you ever thought about, am I truly in the faith? Not to question your salvation, not to say, oh yeah, I'm not saved today, but I'm saved tomorrow, I'm not saved today. No, but have you truly examined yourself? Am I a true believer? Paul says, test and make sure you are in the faith. So that's the second thing, is be prepared. How? Be a true Christian. That's basically what the Bible is saying. Be a true believer and show the fruits of your repentance. Right? Just know that you're a true believer. Be prepared. And then third, I believe Peter is now saying, pray continuously. This is the third way you could be watchful. But pray continuously. If you look at the first part of verse 12, Peter says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, this is the only part of this passage that's hard to explain, really has no explanation. But Peter says somehow we can even hasten, in other words, quicken, speed up the coming of the day of God. So how do we do that, right? How do you speed this up? Because isn't the day of God fixed? Only God the Father knows the day and the hour when Jesus will return, when he will renew all things and judge the living and the dead. Only God the Father knows and he will always come when he has decided to come. So how can we speed that along? Well, some Bible scholars say this could be a reference to prayer. Somehow God has connected prayer to his coming. It doesn't change when he's gonna come. He's gonna come when he decided to come. But somehow prayer is involved in that. It will move time along. It will move everything along until that day comes that God has appointed. So I think this is what it means. It's a reference to prayer. So here, here's the third way you can be watchful. By continuously being in prayer. And so brothers and sisters, prayer is a very important part of living in response to Jesus' coming. Okay, getting ready for his coming. And so do you have a time and place okay, where you are regularly praying? And so again, that inventory, okay, sheet of paper, maybe you should write in the corner prayer. Okay, maybe that's one big area you need to look at and examine. But how is my prayer life? Okay, am I truly watching through prayer? Okay, am I prepared? Am I bringing this day closer and closer through praying? Right? Praying for my family, praying for my community, our church, praying for myself. Okay, praying that Jesus would come soon. So here's the picture I get. Okay, as I read through this passage earlier this week, as I studied these verses, the picture that I saw is, imagine you're sitting in a little cabin in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere on a little island, and you hear on this radio transmitter that you have that a Category 5 hurricane is coming. And this hurricane is going to be so bad, it's going to reach... Winds of 185 miles per hour is going to wreak catastrophic damage on this little island. Everything's going to be obliterated. So here you are in this little cabin on an island, and you hear this hurricane is coming. And yet, you have been well taught. 
and you are watchful. So here's the picture I get of being watchful. But remember, it's being awake, it's being prepared, and it's praying continuously. So it's the same thing. But imagine, you're in this little cabin, and because you've been well taught, what are you going to do? You're going to stay awake, right? You're not just going to be like, oh, right? Just watching things online and then falling asleep. I mean, you're going to be very, very awake and watchful, periodically even going out and looking out the window to kind of see the signs of the hurricane coming. You are going to be awake. You're going to be watchful. Not only that, you're going to be prepared. You're not going to be sitting in an empty room. You've been well taught. You're going to have water. You're going to have stacks of dried food. You're going to have all kinds of things prepared. An electric generator, you will be well prepared. And third, you have this blessed radio transmitter, and you have your headphones on, and you have a direct line to the Coast Guard because they're going to rescue you. Okay, that's Jesus. But you have a direct line to the Coast Guard. And so what are you doing? Are you just like, oh, I don't need to listen to this? No, you're going to have the headphone on and you're going to be regularly, continuously listening, right? Okay, what's happening? Give me updates. What's the warning? What's the latest update? What's the latest warning? You're going to be continuously listening. What, What should I do? What should I do now? What should I do now? And so that's the picture. To me, that is the watchful person. That person is ready for the hurricane. And so this is Peter's encouragement. Are you watchful? Are you awake? Are you prepared? Are you continuously communicating with God? And then we're going to close with this, but the third quality that we must have, the third way we could be responding to Jesus' coming is being a diligent people, being a diligent people. So look at verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Peter said, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here, Peter clearly makes a call for diligence and immediately people go, boom, I know what that means. I'm going to start serving at church and start doing Christian things and just start doing a lot of things that I think God wants. But before you jump into that, I want to say, hold on. If you read more carefully in verse 14, what did Peter say? He said, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord, be diligent to do what? to be found by God. That's weird. How do you be diligent to be found by God? I thought being diligent means you're doing something. No, be diligent to be found by God as what? Spotless, without blemish, and at peace. In other words, peace with God. That's what pretty much every Bible scholar says. This peace is talking about peace with God. So what is Peter saying here? What kind of diligence are we talking about? It's talking about a diligence that you're not shooting off and like doing things for God, but it's to be diligent to be found by God in a certain way. In other words, it's to be diligently applying the gospel to your life. It's to be, a, to be diligently found without spot or blemish. Why? Because you have put your faith in the gospel and now you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Be diligent to be found like that. He's also saying, be diligent to be at peace with God. Can you do that? No. What can you do right now to go out and then find peace with God? Only one thing. Believe in the gospel. Believe in what Jesus did for you. So this is the diligence Peter's talking about. Be diligent to apply the gospel as you're waiting for his coming. Are you covered in the righteousness of Christ? Are you at peace with God because Jesus died for you, took away the wrath of God upon your life, and now you are a friend of God? You went from an enemy of God to now a friend of God. Have you done that? Are you continuously reminding yourself of that? Are you living in the light of that? This is what Peter is saying. Be diligent, right? Don't be like, oh yeah, I know the gospel. I accepted Christ in junior high. I'm cool. I'm going to study the end times now and talk about the Antichrist and all this other stuff. You should. But this isn't what he's saying. He's saying, have you reapplied the gospel again and again and again into your life? 
You know, I remember um, years and years ago when I was in youth group, I don't remember anything my youth pastor said. God bless youth pastors, right? They're very important. <laughs> but I don't remember almost anything he said. But I do remember one thing. He said, hey, look, kids, Christianity is going to be the hardest thing you ever do in your life. I don't remember anything else, but I do remember him saying that. Now, many, many years later, as an older man now, looking back, I still agree with that statement. But the reason why I agree with that statement has changed. When I was younger, I'm like, yeah, it is so hard. Wow, Christian, you know, Christianity is so hard. You got to be, a, a, you know, pure. You got to, like, not look at things. You got to go to church all the time. I don't like all that. But now I realize, no, Christianity is very hard, but for a different reason. It's difficult because... Applying the gospel to the deepest part of your heart is hard and often painful. But this is the hard work that God wants us to do. But Jesus himself answered in this way. When people came to him in John 6, 28 and said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to talk about works? Here's the work you need to be doing. Believe. Believe in me. And apply that to every area of your life. And so now, as an older man, yeah, Christianity is very hard, but for a different reason. Not because i got to do things for God, but it's because I need to apply what he's done to every area of my life. And that's hard. That's hard. You know, even the other day, you know, um, yeah, I got into an argument with somebody, I won't mention who, somebody in my family. But then afterwards, driving in my car, I'm like, gosh, this is so hard. Why was I so defensive? Why did I retaliate and attack so immediately, right? Just immediately, ah! <laughs> just jumping all over that person. Well, it's because I didn't apply the gospel to that area of my life. I felt like I was being disrespected, undermined in some way when the gospel says I already have all the respect I would ever need in Christ. He has shown me respect and unconditional acceptance through his death and resurrection. I don't really believe that. And so the moment I felt disrespected, ah, right? I'm retaliating. I'm coming out with full arm swinging. And so this is the hardest part, brothers and sisters, is are you being diligent to apply the gospel to every area of your heart? And so this is the diligence that Peter is saying you need if you're going to be ready for the coming of the Lord. And so the gospel shows us what we already have so that we don't need to go looking for something else. We just merely need to work out the salvation in fear and trembling, using Paul's words. And so here, Peter talks about how people often twisted Paul's writings. And in particular, it's talking about Paul's teachings on the grace of God. And so here's one way you can't apply the grace of God, but you don't apply it by saying, okay, it's all grace, so now I'm going to just do whatever I want. I'm just going to live my own life, my own way. And Peter says, no, if you do that, you are twisting Paul's teachings on grace. And Paul himself addressed that many times. Because God had grace on me, now do I sin even more? May it never be. Right? It's not a license to sin, but rather it's a license to obey. It's motivation to submit and obey. But if you were to have somebody pay the ultimate price for you, and then later a family member, let's say they gave a kidney to you. I actually knew a brother at my old church where a family member needed a kidney. And I believe, I think I might have shared this before. But he really prayed about it. He asked me for prayer. And he's like, I think I'm going to donate my kidney to my family member. I'm not sure if he went through with it. He might have. But let's say somebody donated their kidney to you. And then later that person asked the favor from you. Oh, no, it's grace. I got a second lease on life. I'm doing my own thing. No, you will be like, what do you need? What do you need? Okay, I'm here. I'm here for you. I want to do what you ask. That's the grace. That's the true knowledge of the grace of God. And so Peter says here, people who don't understand that, they will twist Paul's teachings on grace. They are unstable. This is evidence of their judgment, of their condemnation. And so have you diligently applied the gospel in this way? Are you diligently applying the grace of God? And if you have, then here's the final point, and we're going to close with this. But the last thing that we need to be diligent doing is sharing the gospel. Not only applying the gospel, but sharing the gospel. And Peter says in verse 15, 
and count, not only apply the gospel, be found spotless and at peace with God, but count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you see God delaying, then see that as an opportunity for salvation. See that as salvation. In other words, the longer God waits, that's more opportunity for you to begin to share the gospel to bring people to salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And so, is that another thing that you've been doing? But are you diligently sharing the gospel? And next year, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to hear a lot more about this at the retreat. And all of next year, actually, is sharing the gospel with our oikos. How are we going to do that? And so, diligently applying the gospel to our lives and diligently sharing the gospel. Okay, this is how we're going to be ready, brothers and sisters. We are going to be eternally minded. We are going to be watchful. And we will be diligent. And I love how John Wesley encapsulated this so well. But I remember one time, John Wesley, he was the great revivalist. He brought revival to Great Britain in the 1700s. He literally saved that country from a revolution because at the same time, France went through a bloody revolution. A lot of historians say Britain was saved from that because of Wesley's efforts. He brought such a revival to that land. But to this great man of God, somebody answered him, if someone told you Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do, Mr. Wesley? What would you do? And then this is what he said. I would rise at 4 in the morning, not 4 p.m., 4 a.m. I would preach at 5, I would visit at 7, and then I would hold communion service at 8. And then the next day, I would do it again. Basically, he's saying, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done, which is share the gospel. Amen? And so this is a very, very beautiful example of what we can be doing. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let's be watchful. Let's live for him, amen? So let's just come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Father, for just your clear and, for me, convicting call to not just live my life drifting from this to that, but to really begin to live in a focused way with an eternal perspective, to really begin to live in a focused way, watchful, being awake, being prepared, being in prayer. Not only that, but to be diligent, Lord, diligent in applying the gospel and sharing the gospel. But help us, Father, help us. And so, Lord God, what more can we say? There's nothing more I can add to that. You've given us everything. You've told us everything we need. So help us to be ready for your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, as we uh, just continue in prayer, let's just come before the Lord right now. But as we do every Sunday, let's just respond in prayer.